0: your brain clicks into a different zone and you're off and Mm. you can see like the spark dying in someone's eyes but you can't see that if you're looking at their left ear
1: I'm Ben McKenzie.
0: Welcome to Pratchat, the monthly Terry Pratchett book club podcast.
1: Each month we discuss one of Terry Pratchett's books or short stories with a special guest.
0: This month we're doing both, starting with The High Megas, basically the short Long Earth. Um, and our special guest, for me, is Ben. And <laughs> my special guest is Liz.
1: Uh, but- <laughs> because we will be back on July 25 with our slightly delayed but regularly scheduled episode discussing The Long Mars with guest Joel Martin. But unfortunately, for reasons beyond our control, we just could not record that episode. So instead, we're doing this one for the 8th and we'll do the proper book on the 25th rather than move our schedule around, which is what we normally do. So if you didn't Mm. see us announce this, uh, it all happened fairly late notice. So here we are. Here we are, Liz. Mm. An extra bonus episode about a story we probably wouldn't have otherwise devoted a whole episode to because it turned into a series of five books.
0: Well, I kept suggesting we do it. You're like, no, no, we're doing the long series. was fine. We don't have to do the High Megas. I'm like, fine. Well, I won't read it then. I'm just, I don't know, because I don't have to. I'll <laughs> yes. read it in my own time at some point in the next 10 years. But now now there's an opportunity to. And how do we feel about that? We will find out.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, we did discuss it very, I say we, I, I discussed it very briefly uh, in our episode on The Long Earth, the first book in the series, but uh, yeah, I was the only one who'd read it, so I- mm. <laughs> we didn't really go into it very much. My brief discussion of the High Makers in Pratchett thirty one occurs at around the thirty seven minutes and thirty seconds mark. You're welcome.
0: But it is like it
1: is its own beast. I think. Yeah, yeah, it's quite different.
0: It's weird. It's really <laughs> weird. <laughs> it is. It is weird. But
1: I, I it's weird reading it. I'm kind of glad we've come back to it now, a few books mm. down the line of the Long Earth series, because reading it when we're reading the first one. That's where it's got the most in common. And so I think now there's a bit more distance. I can look at it as its own thing a little bit more. But
0: But the things it has in common are strange and unnecessary that it has (laughs) them in common. Like I know there's like a long period of time that elapsed between this being written and the books being written. But I mean, I guess we're going to do our traditional opening and then we'll talk about all of the issues, good things, bad things, confusing things, improving things.
1: Yes. So we should read Terry's notes as we do for any of the short stories. And if you want to read this and you haven't, um, it is collected in a blink of the screen. It's the first time it had been published. And there are some special editions of the first Long Earth book that also include this story as bonus content at the end. The short story evolved into the Long Earth. The High Megas was rather a doodle at first, something to do after I'd sent the Colour of Magic to my then-publishers, Colin Smythe. I could visualise it minutely, and wanted to begin with a series of short stories. I was still playing with the ideas when The Colour of Magic was published and, inexplicably, became very popular, far more successful than any of my previous books. And in those circumstances, what is a humble jobbing author supposed to do? The basis of The Light Fantastic was already dancing in my mind and gathering momentum, and so, with some reluctance, I put The High Megas, which I had previously thought would one day make the foundation to a great series, under wraps until it was unearthed a few years ago over quail's eggs at a literary dinner attended by Ralph Vincenanza, my American agent, and Rob Wilkins. My enthusiasm was rekindled, and after discussing the ideas with Steve Baxter, who I've always considered to be the UK's finest writer of Hard SF, a new journey began. Frankly, I'm glad we did it this way. Besides, it was a lot more fun.
0: Alright, so I just want to say one thing in my version of A Blink of the Screen... This short story, it says it was written in 1986, and the short story itself starts on page 86.
1: <laughs> well, that's very pleasing.
0: Yes, it is very pleasing. I don't
1: think there's any mysteries here. Everybody knows this is the short story that was the original idea behind The Long Earth. And a lot of the original ideas are there. I guess we'll go through them, but mm. we'll, we'll, let's, let's go. We will go through the plot because some people might not have read this.
0: Yeah, I hadn't until we did this episode. So I think a lot of people won't. It's an,
1: it's like it's got its own little sort of self-contained story. But the main character is a guy named Larry Lindsay, which is a name that will sound vaguely familiar to anyone who's read the Long Earth series because Lindsay is, in that book, the uh, surname of both the man who invents the stepper box and releases it on the world and his daughter, Sally, who becomes a major character in the novels as well. But in this book, he is kind of like a mashup of... Willis Lindsay, the inventor from the novels, and uh, Joshua Valiente, the sort of main character or sort of the main character, the first one anyway, because he's a reclusive person who's living out in the high megas, the slang term for the parallel Earths that are many, many, many steps away from the original Earth. We didn't mention this during our discussion, but one incidental thing Pratchett changed between 1986 and 2012 is the spelling of the term Megas. In the original it's M-E-G-G-A-S, while in the novels it's M-E-G-G-E-R-S. This is presumably to make it clear how the characters say it, i.e. the High Megas, not the High Megas. In both cases it's presumably derived from Mega, the metric prefix meaning one million, which itself comes from the ancient Greek Megas, meaning great. Almighty, although I have no idea how to pronounce that in ancient Greek. And I found myself, while trying to write up what happened, really finding it difficult to avoid use of the terms step mm. um, and other things from the modern books. Because he's clearly, you know, they've evolved the idea and thought up this whole nomenclature for how everything works that isn't What's in What's
0: the, the story? word they do use instead?
1: They say, uh, well, they it flip. They don't really talk about flipping. They just sort of talk about how many worlds you are. They use flip as sort of a stand-in for when you are going from one to another, and the verb they use for going from one to another is moving, but in italics. Right. Which is, yeah, not super clear. I think the, the changing it to step was a great yeah. idea.
0: And changing the belt a little bit too. But shall we do like a quick overview of what the plot is, and then we can discuss some of the, the key things that we pull out of it?
1: Yeah. So, basically, Larry, who it turns out invented the belt- which is what it is in this story. Or perfected that you, the belt or perfected it. That's true. Didn't invent it, but perfected it, turned it from a barrel <laughs> into <laughs> something you could actually wear. But yeah, he perfected this belt that lets you step into parallel universes where there are no people. And he is off in the high megas, much, you know, m- many, many of these steps away from earth, checking it out. Um, and the part that he's in is a part where there's these big holes in the ground. The the idea is that each world gets progressively further away from Earth in terms of how similar it is, and he's mm. in a stretch of worlds where there's been a, a massive meteorite or a set of meteorites that have smashed into the ground, and they call it the Fist. And he's in France because that's where it landed, and there's bits of the coastline that have been obliterated by it and other bits that, when it broke up, you know, made big crater holes in the ground. So, he's investigating that and other mysteries of the the sort of far-removed Earths. And he's not entirely alone. There's no other humans around, but there is a troop of what he calls super baboons um, or boons for short, which sounds like it doesn't sound good. Um, mm. And they have a particularly smart leader that he refers to as the big yin. Weird reference to Billy Connolly, I assume. Is it? That's something? Yeah, that's what he used to call himself, the big yin. I think it's like slang for like a, a Scotsman. I'll have to look it up because it also sounds like something that probably is actually incredibly racist if you don't Mm. know the context. The Big Yin is, blessedly, not racist at all. It's just Scots for the big one. Billy's father, also a big man named Billy, was known as Big Billy and Billy as Wee Billy until he grew bigger even than his dad. Then his friends started to refer to him as the Big Yin by which they knew someone meant Wee Billy instead of Big Billy. And suddenly, fecal names make a lot more sense, don't they? But he's also able to detect when people step into the world that he's in. He's got technology that lets him do that. And he detects two people stepping in. And when he investigates, it turns out they're two security guards from a military outpost a few worlds away. Actually, more than a few. They don't say exactly how many, but it seems like maybe- Takes
0: three months to get there, pretty much.
1: Yeah, like a few hundred, probably, at least. So, he catches one of them whose name is Joshua Valiente.
0: Why is he so wedded to these names that, like, are of different characters? As in, like, Joshua Valiente, an amazing name, and I would Good absolutely name. want to carry that through. But, like, call Lindsay something else, unless there's some specific reference that you're making. I, I just don't understand because it, it makes things a bit murky.
1: I feel like it would make more sense if you never published this story to use the names because then you're just saving yourself some time. Oh, I don't have to think up names for these characters. I'll just use the names from this story. But then when you publish the original, it now feels a bit weird.
0: Yeah, because um, Joshua Valiente has no parallels with the one in the books later, in my opinion. It wasn't like a very few, little. but they're not the same guy at all. No, no I agree. He's not even a proto-Joshua Valiente. They've just got a few little things.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think I, I get the feeling that Prashat was a very efficient writer in the sense that if he had a good idea, he never threw it away. He found a way to reuse it and he'd like scroll away his notes. And it, this is something that I think, A lot of writers don't do, and I think it's fine whether you do or not. Like, there's no right way to do this necessarily, but you either kind of write these things down and what happens is that gets them out of your head and makes room for new ideas and then you never use the old ones again, (laughs) or you write everything down and then when you're a bit stuck, you go through and rummage through that and you pull things out of a drawer and go, oh, I've had this sitting around for a while, I haven't used that. And Pratchett, I think, was very much the latter sort of person to the point where he had a fan on speed dial who just had a really good memory for all of his previous books who he would talk to to make sure he didn't repeat too many jokes. That was great. Who still let a few slip through, but-
0: oh Yeah, like the glove box. Yeah, the glove box.
1: Yeah, there's other ones. Anyway, yeah. but yeah, these two people are security guards. He catches Joshua Valiente, uh, gets the drop on him with his gun, asks him what his deal is, why are you here? Because he doesn't like the gumment, mm. <laughs> which is how he spells and pronounces government. <laughs> it's so good. He's a real libertarian, it seems. It's not clear where he's from, but using the word gumment makes me think he's probably meant to be American.
0: There's a lot of, like, Ron Swanson vibe to him.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't thought about that, but now I'm thinking about him being, it. <laughs> him being Ron Swanson.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's oh. the same energy.
1: Yeah, totally. Uh, although I pictured him as much more wiry because he's meant to be, like, this sort of, you know, living off the land survivor type. I I picture
0: that, but now I'm picturing Ron Swanson because the personality (laughs) is there. He loves solitude, loves, like, yeah, Yeah. freedom, hates the government.
1: Yeah. But he interrogates Joshua Valente, who claims that the reason that he's here and the reason there's another guard here is that the other guard that he's chasing poisoned the water at the military base and killed 50 people.
0: Including children.
1: But then escaped when they realized that he was still alive and he chased after them because he's like, I've got to do something about this. Uh, his conscience wouldn't let him just let them go. And he claims that that person is a, is from a terrorist organization called Forever France who has a problem with people just grabbing bits of France in the other worlds. Because in this world, there's, there's a few little passages that give us some background about what the world is like since people have been able to go to parallel universes. And it's very different to the Long Earth because they have a thing called the Sideways Doctrine where they basically say the original Earth, nothing changes. You can't just go wherever you want on the original Earth. But any other earth, you know what? If you find it, you can claim it. And if you can keep it, it's yours. So it's, it's a free for all. And some people really don't like that. And this terrorist organization, Forever France is supposedly like, you can't just come into the other world versions of France and say it's yours. It belongs to France. They're like a sort of very ultra nationalist, probably horrible right wing terrorist organization. Mm. That's what he claims. So, Larry ties him up for safety, goes out to find the other person, who it turns out to be a woman named Anna Shay. Uh She's unconscious because she's stepped from the previous world into this one, and they're both wearing belts that are designed for much more normal Earths, closer to the original, where things don't change that much between one world and the next. And so, all they do, the belts just sort of stop you from stepping into the middle of an object and dying- mm. Uh, by making sure you don't go if there's an object in your way. But what they don't do is check that there's ground underneath you because uh, they don't expect that's going to be a problem. And she stepped from a world where there was no crater to a world where there is a crater and fallen down and hurt mm-hmm. herself. So he collects her and interrogates her, and she basically says the same thing. She claims that Joshua is the one who poisoned the well and that she was saved because she was drinking milk that day
0: <laughs> for yeah, lunch. Milk and sandwiches or something like that.
1: Yeah. And that she was chasing him. He doesn't really trust either of them. So, he sort of leaves them both tied up and goes to sleep with his gun. But he's also got a security system rigged up that if anyone comes near where his bed is, he automatically flips into a world a few worlds away. Because also in this story, you can flip more than one world at once if you want. And that happens in the middle of the night. And then he comes back and finds the woman Anna has gotten out of being tied up and is going through his bits of paper and maps and stuff and claims that she was coming to try and make him see reason, implying that she was going to seduce him in order to get him to believe her, which is highly suspicious behaviour. But then they see Joshua running away and Larry shoots him, seemingly thinking he must be the one who really poisoned it because he's trying to escape. Uh, oh, one important bit that's happened is when he's flipped away and come- he's managed to, like, break his ankle and he's in a lot of pain. Mm. So, he's at a bit of a disadvantage, but he's still got his gun on Anna. But then when Joshua escapes, he's like, oh, he must be the bad guy. Shoots him. And then Anna's like, I'm glad you decided to trust me. Give me the gun. I'm I'm just going to go and make sure that he's not got away. Like, I don't really care if he's dead or whatever. Larry's like, hmm. And then she realizes that he still doesn't trust her. And so, she kicks him in the broken ankle, making him drop his gun and chases him across several worlds. And as she's chasing him, clearly she's the actual poisoner. He flips a few worlds ahead, goes about two dozen worlds further into what we would call, mm. having read the long earth, the gap. So mm. there's um, the fist, these meteorites, they cause damage to the earth. But as you go further, eventually there's one where they hit it so hard, they basically destroy the whole planet and there's nothing left except some asteroids. He, they flip into that world. He's prepared for it and flips back. She doesn't know it's coming and her belt automatically flips her forward. And he's like, well, she's probably dead because there's probably more than one world where there's no earth. And he manages to get back to his camp where it turns out Joshua is not dead. He missed him on purpose because, as he says, I just wanted to see what would happen next. (laughs) What a weirdo. Yeah. And they think, okay, well, we're home free. And Joshua's trying to plan how he's going to get them back to medical assistance because Larry's been in vacuum and he needs
0: some help. But also you got to remember the double tap rule, so
1: oh, yeah, it's you not gotta, all done. you got to make sure they're dead because Anna's not dead. She comes back from the gap. She goes across, finds there's an earth on the other side, then comes back across. So why? she's been through the vacuum twice. Well, because, like, where else is she going to go? She can't go home otherwise. But, like, why
0: try and find them? Just go somewhere else. Like, just leave oh, them alone. Guess, I
1: guess, well, look, I kind of understood it. Like, if your rationale is I don't want there to be any witnesses... I'm not going to go home and assume that, you know, he's dead and that the other guy's dead and that no one will come and find me. Like, if you're really paranoid enough to be poisoning 50 people to death, I think you're paranoid enough to come back and try and finish off the people who saw you.
0: I guess it's like, what's her goal, though? Like, I don't know if she's trying to get rid of witnesses. It's because she's part of the super nationalist group. She's just trying to kill anyone who's in France who shouldn't be. Well, that also
1: is probably part of it, yeah.
0: Because I think, like, she is only running from Joshua because he's chasing her. And so, it's not that she doesn't want witnesses. It's that she's just got to get rid of this risk and also this guy who shouldn't be in France. That's how I I read it. Because mm. I don't think she'd be worried about punishment.
1: Uh I think she would. Um. Well, maybe. It's not really covered. It's too short a story. Yeah. But anyway, it's, it doesn't happen because just as she's got a, a gun and she's got the drop on both Larry and Joshua, and just as she's about to shoot them- Big Yin, the super baboon who's been biding his time waiting for an opportunity, while he sees them all distracted, he just jumps in and attacks her. And while she's fighting off this super baboon, Larry is able to get to his gun and presumably shoots her. It's not explicitly described, but that seems to be clearly what happened, because he leaves the Big Yin alive, hoping to give them a chance to evolve into proper life. Yeah. Uh, Or proper- sorry, I should say proper intelligent life is Mm. what he means.
0: I actually have a theory that, and it is not dead. There's a thing where it says the red jumpsuit and the dusty gray shape danced in front of his sight, but he didn't squeeze the trigger until he was certain, but that's not for sure. So in a longer version, maybe she comes back.
1: And that's it. That's kind of the whole story. It's an interesting, like, I thought it was an interesting little premise. You know, again, you know, it's not a fully developed story as as Pratchett describes it, but it's so Mm. full of interesting ideas. And as a way to introduce the idea of the long earth, I thought it worked pretty well.
0: I make it sound like I really didn't like it, but I, I did like it. It's world building with without feeling like you're just getting a whole bunch of exposition. So the story is very good in that way. Like you learn a lot along the way that you need to know without it being sort of like pummeled. Mm. Um, I like how they mentioned the fist without explaining what it was for like two thirds of the story to allow you to sort of figure it out for yourself before like they definitively tell you how it is. The mm-hmm. thing that bothered me the most, um, I think it's just cause like on a writing level, because it's such an easy fix. Mm-hmm. The tension I thought was supposed to be like, which one of them telling the truth? Which one is the poisoner? But there's a flaw in the writing, in my opinion, early on where Joshua tells his side of the story to Lindsay and their dialogue stops. And then there's a section that goes for over a page that explains, starts the chase had taken nearly four days and it shows what happened. Mm. And then he's like, Oh, but why am I even chasing her? It's like, because of the children and some of them weren't dead when I got there. I'm like, well, then that's the truth because we're seeing inside his mind. We know that he's not the poisoner. Cause like, he's not saying that to Lindsay. Yeah. So from there I was like, okay, well, unless there's like some sort of extra thing, it's not even an unreliable narrator thing. Cause he's not the narrator of the yeah. story. So therefore I, I was like, well, Anna is the person who did this. Anna is like, so I didn't have that as a reader, and I don't think there was enough time to make it being like, oh, we know what the truth is, but we're seeing, you know, like when you know yeah. what the murderer is in the house, yeah. there wasn't enough of that on the other side. So I just feel like if they cut that or made that dialogue, it would have fixed the issue of us knowing who the yeah. person telling the truth was from the beginning.
1: I agree. I think when I read it, my impression was that it was still meant to be that that's what Joshua had told Larry. Because it seems like Larry knows it. But be- I agree with you that because it's in prose and it's not in dialogue, that's not clear. And it does feel a bit like we're getting the narrator truth mm. um, because it's a third person narrator. It's not Larry telling the story.
0: Because their conversation had finished as well. And then we get this bit. It wasn't like at the beginning and then they continue. And then it's implied that that was more of the conversation that had been like summarized. It's after yeah. the conversation. So
1: yeah, that's true. I think, I think I sort of, Filed it that way in my brain because that made more sense to me, but I totally agree. It's not clear. And it did make me go, okay, well, I mean, this is a pretty developed story <laughs> because one of the things later on that Larry says when he shoots Joshua, I keep getting the names wrong because I keep thinking of Larry as Joshua because he's <laughs> living far away on the high megas. And that's something that Joshua does in the, in the novels. Um, yeah. but, uh, yeah, when he shoots him, he says to Anna, oh, I'm so sure it was you because he just seemed too simple. And I'm like, If his story was a lie, that is not a simple story. Like, he thinks up a lot of details (laughs) about it. So, I agree. It wasn't- there needed to be a bit more confusion and mystery about that and then more of a payoff. Yeah. Because he just sort of decides that it's her. There's not, like, a conclusive moment except when she goes, oh, shit. And that could also just be her going, oh, you don't trust me, rather than, oh, you know I did it.
0: But at the same time, it depends. Like, if this is like an early draft of a short story he jotted out in 1986 when he was developing the potential for a, a new series and never thought it was going to be published, this was going to be like a book eventually. That's okay then if it was never meant to be like the final product. But I guess what's the ethics of if you are making a uh, years later an anthology of your work? Can you edit it to fix? Like, cause to me, that's a very simple fix. You just move that section earlier and make a little bit of. At dialogue, and yeah. then then you've solved that. That's but if that, if you're trying to be like, this is what I wrote in 1986, and you've mm. given the context of this was not a published short story for a thing; it was my ideas. Then that's probably okay. My issues are just that it's an imperfect short story that could be very easily fixed. But in the context of what it is, it's mm. acceptable.
1: And it's interesting what he does and doesn't choose to do that too. Like obviously, when he republished the Carpet People, he rewrote that extensively. Uh, something you'll be able to hear us talk about on the video very soon. And he did that, I think, also with some of his really early short stories that he wrote when he was still a teenager when they were republished. He apparently tinkered with those quite a bit too, or at least he cleaned them up a bit. I think, I don't think he radically changed any of them. He just sort of made them a bit less clumsy. Whereas with this, I feel like he's just published it as it was. He hasn't really changed it because he's like, well, you know, the work that that would be, I've already put into making The Long Earth. So, Mm. why don't you see where it started? Because I actually still quite like this. And it's an interesting glimpse into how the idea evolved between when it was first conceived and
0: when it was finished. And there's so much good stuff there. Like, I really am into it. So, yeah, yeah, all all my gripes are purely on the, (laughs) oh, just like fix it a little and it'll be like really, really good. Yeah. Yeah.
1: It's got some good pace, I think, too, even though it's slightly on the longer side, I guess, for a short story. But it's not its not like super long, like something like, you know, The Sea and Little Fishes, which is like a short novella. Yeah, I think it's got a really good pace. There's only a couple of bits that are pure exposition, and they're fairly short. Like, there's one that kind of just describes the quantum nature of the parallel universes and how it's like a deck of cards, except each card is three-dimensional. And you're Mm. like, oh, yeah, I can imagine. I mean, I don't have to imagine the three-dimensional part. And then when you move from one to another, you sort of burrow through the deck going from one card to another. That's a good metaphor. That's fine. Mm-hmm. I'd like, I like getting a glimpse at the alternate sort of more hard sci-fi. It's kind of weird to me that, you know, he partnered up with Stephen Baxter, who he describes in that intro as like this great hard SF writer. And yet this is probably a more hard SF take on the technology and stuff because. It is all technology-based. You've got to wear this belt and it's got all these safety devices and
0: batteries. And it's a big part of the plot in the middle, like when he's flipping through and trying to get away from her, like he's talking about all the different things you need to do. And if a smart person would use it this way and to try and stay one step ahead, Then technology was surprising. Because usually, yeah, in his other books, he leaves a lot up to the reader.
1: Yeah. And in the Long Earth books, as we'll talk about a lot in the Long Mars episode, I don't want to preclude that too much. But it's becoming more and more as the series goes along, a bit metaphysical. It's not just about the technology, because the Good. stepper boxes sort of enable you to do something that you—it's not the box doing it, you're doing it, but the box is an aid to help you. Mm. Um, whereas in this, it's like, no, you need a belt. Like the belt does it. Mm. Um, to the point where he, t- at one point, he's he's thinking about maybe sending a message back to the authorities, and he's got a mouse in a cage. <laughs> With a, and he's like, yeah, if I we rig up a little belt to the mm-hmm. wheel and, um, I put some food in there. And then he's trying to calculate how many batteries he's going to need because the more stuff he puts in to keep the mouse alive so it can take the message. And I was also just thinking, does it need the mouse? Like it's not really explained, but it's like, can only a living thing do it or could you not just rig up a little motor or rig up a belt that just automatically goes for a certain distance like i don't understand why it has to be a mouse
0: i reckon it does need to like it's interesting because they have that whole thing about the practical ugly suits having lots of pockets because if you don't have it on you it doesn't come with you, yeah, you have to carry and i guess things, it yeah. makes theft like interesting like because can you put a belt around like something you want to steal and then step that but no because it's like mm. yeah so it's
1: I mean, I was really impressed to see, like, even in this first version, he's clearly put a lot of thought into how does it all work. When he says in that intro, you know, he's glad he did it this way because it was a lot of fun. I can imagine, you know, in fantasy, you can just make stuff up, but in sci-fi, your audience expects it to make sense. I can't remember. Someone was talking about this, and I I can't remember who said that. might have even been a Pratchett quote, but I can see how if you were writing this with someone else, it would be so much fun going back and forth, going- but if it, what about this? Like, if this works, how does that? Okay, great. But then how do we explain this and how do we explain that? Um, and it would, it would be tremendous fun. I would like to do that. I mean, I have, I have done that. I would like to do it more. It's so much fun.
0: No, absolutely. It's like, it got me thinking, like, even just from this conversation in the books, how they have the big machines that move through things, like, do they have the capacity to send a man, like a drone through? Or are they always manned?
1: No, because it has to be an intelligence in the Long Earth series. That's why Lobsang can do it, because he's an artificial intelligence and he's mm. in the blimp. And then the later ones that they make, the Twains, all have a version of an artificial intelligence that drives them. And that's why they're able to step.
0: There's so much in those books that when I was, I'm, I'm not going to get into spoilers for our upcoming episode, but I'm just going to say that there's so much in there that. When I start a new one in the series, I'm like, "Wait, how much has come before this?" And every time you remember something, you're like, "How does this all fit in two books?" Yeah. Because there's so many different threads, so <laughs> many technologies, so many characters.
1: My partner Anna's reading The Expanse at the moment, and she describes them the same way. Just everything happens in the first book, and then it slows down a little bit in the later ones. But it's just so much stuff happens.
0: Mm. Yeah. I love the things in Terry Pratchett books where it makes me wonder, hey, is this what, if he were at a party, this is the thing that he thinks about when he meets a person. <laughs> and that yeah. was, he describes him as a left ear person, someone who yes. like looks at your left ear. And I was like, oh, I know exactly what you mean. And then I had a mini crisis of personality being like, am I a left ear person? <laughs> um, but it's such, it's just one of those astute observations that only a few people would Not only notice, but be able to pinpoint in writing as a thing Mm. that reminds me like over and over again, whenever I come across one in his books, just how gifted he was and how he was able to turn things like that into something universal and funny.
1: Yeah. I I mean, I think we've all met someone like that because the concept, (laughs) if you haven't read the story, the concept is.
0: (laughs) How would I read a bit? Lindsay was a left ear person, Valiente realized. He had seen plenty of them. Their eyes glazed slightly and they stared fixedly at your left ear while their mouths spouted the truth about flying saucers, the great world conspiracy, or one-born every-minute evangelism. Inside everyone was a left ear person waiting to get out.
1: Yeah. So it's like, I know what I believe. Hmm. <laughs> I'm not going to about it
0: doing their conversation and you're sort of incidentally there sometimes and i feel like maybe that is um me when i'm talking about the melbourne general cemetery or (laughs) the queen victoria Market or um (laughs) the magician will armor or something there's i'm just your brain clicks into a different zone and you're off and Mm. you can see like the spark dying in someone's eyes but you can't see that if you're looking at their left ear
1: (laughs) (laughs) you're like i'm gonna talk about this and um, you
0: don't do it to be... It says you can't stop yourself. Um, yeah. Oh, am I one of these people? Oh. <laughs>
1: no, I don't think so, Liz. Come on. <laughs> I th- I think the big difference is, like, you know, when you talk about things, right, you talk about them because I have shown an interest. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. Rather than you're going to hear about this whether uh, you care or not. But I think immediately after that, you're talking about things that remind you of Pratchett's other work. There's a bit where he describes uh, Valiente's looking at Lindsay's belt, and he realises it's an advanced one, but it's not a production model. He's built it himself, and it's not one cobbled together out of crap bits of stuff that just does the basics. Uh, the phrase is, Lindsay's belt looked as a production car would look if it had been bought by a hotshot automobile engineer. <laughs> you know, he's tricked it out. He's, he's customised it because he intimately understands the technology. Mm. I thought that was nice. It reminded me of the way he describes the AR machine in If Def Debug, World Enough and Time, which belongs to the developer. And there's a lot of ideas here that do end up in the books. Uh, we don't have the trolls and elves and stuff, but we do have the super baboons who are kind of mm. close. Um, we've ones. got the, the Fist, which they call Belos. It's like a rogue planet in the in the other stories that destroys the I wish the it was Earth. still
0: the Fist because the imagery of that is great. Like, I really love the idea of this thing pummeling the Earth.
1: Mm. I have a feeling like there is a version – Maybe they do say that. Like, I think maybe they mention it when they introduce the idea, like they have a few different names for what it is or how it might have happened.
0: It did sound familiar because I didn't feel like this was the first time I'd heard it, Mm. but so much in the first two books that we've read that I just cannot (laughs) keep it all in my brain.
1: It's a lot of stuff, yeah. I've made so many notes about these books. It's ridiculous. But there's some things that sort of – stick around, but they change significantly, one of which being the belts and the stepper boxes. But I really like this more technological version of the belts because it allows for a lot of variation. Like if you've got a better belt with better technology, you're better suited to some jobs than someone else. It gives you an advantage. But also belts that can be customised or they're useful in different places. And, yeah, I kind of liked that.
0: There's also not an implication of there being natural... To use the book phrase, steppers, either. Mm. It's everyone has the belts. Yeah, and it's not that... Or soft places.
1: And again, you know, this is something we'll get more into in The Long Mars because it becomes more of a thing there, but it has already come up in the first two books a little bit, is that there's this idea that intelligent life is what causes the long Earth, and that's the reason why there's no humans on other worlds. The evolution of humans is what created the long Earth, and so their world is the only one with them on it. Whereas in this version of the story, the reason there's no humans in the other Earths is just because the evolution of humans is statistically very improbable. So, certainly all the Earths that they've visited don't have humans on them. And then there's stuff that just doesn't make it when it's translated into the novels, like the idea of being able to step multiple worlds at once. Like, that's something that almost never happens. Like, uh, some of the natural steppers can sort of double-step a little bit. Mm. And then there's the soft places thing, which is like wormholes that are shortcuts to specific other Earths, but there's not really this option on a stepper box to like flick it forward two positions and go like three worlds at a time, um, which is something they kind of do in this story, mm. Um which much, I mean, I think makes the chase a bit more interesting because like if you only yeah. step one world at a time and you have to do it fairly slowly, you could follow someone, but if they can go three or two worlds ahead, you don't know which one they're going to. So, mm-hmm. I quite like that.
0: Yeah,
1: same. And yeah, the, the whole mouse thing. Uh I like that the whole he's put consideration into how much power this would need. Yeah. You need batteries and the more weight you're transferring, the more stuff you're carrying or the or the further you've got to go, the more batteries you need. But the more batteries you carry, the more weight you've got. So the more batteries you need. <laughs> so I thought that was uh that was fun.
0: I guess it's like airplanes as well, like they need more fuel, but then like fuel has its weight. Yeah. From what very... my limited knowledge of how airplanes work. But I remember particularly on Concords, that was a big thing that they had yeah. to think about how to balance because they wanted to go fast, but they needed enough fuel, but the fuel took on a lot of weight. And apparently they actually stored the fuel in the sides of the plane to make it balance out, but, yeah.
1: Yeah, this is this is also why – I think we've talked about this maybe in mm. the Wings episode a little bit, but it's also why, like, they've done things on airplanes like reduced the number of tomatoes in a salad by two <laughs> because even though that's not an immense amount of weight in one salad when you've got, like, 400 of them on a big plane to feed the entire passenger contingent, um, that equates to however many kilograms less weight, which means however many – liters less fuel, and the fuel is really expensive, so even saving a few liters can really make a difference to your bottom line. It's a real consideration, and even more so in spaceflight, where every kilogram you stick on a space rocket costs you however many million dollars in extra fuel.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, it's too many things to think about.
1: I did like some of the nomenclature in this. Like, I think the the whole moving and uh, flipping thing Kind of worked. Like I think in a short story, it's fine. But I think for I- extending the story, yeah, it's really good that they came up with some unique terms like stepwise and and west and east mm-hmm. earths and stuff like that.
0: Yeah, it'd have been a bit much otherwise.
1: That, I did enjoy the term upduck. <laughs> if you what, what's upduck? Get- <laughs> <laughs> but that's where you uh, you flip into another world. You go around behind someone, and then you flip back, and you yeah. can, you know punch them or whatever. A bit rough. And there's some, like, really heavy stuff. Like, there's a couple of sort of funny moments, but there's also some really heavy stuff. Like, 50 people, including children, get poisoned in this story. They allude to another similar terrorist group. Massacre. Yeah, who just massacre a whole bunch of colonists somewhere because they're on the country's land in another world. They didn't want them there. Full on. Yeah. But there's also- I mean, there's also some problematic stuff in this story. Not heaps, but I mean, there is the whole fact that there's only three characters. Two of them are men and the woman turns out to not only be the villain, but also to just casually say, Oh, yeah, I was just going to seduce you because you didn't trust me and I would have won you over uh, at one point.
0: Real bond areas. Like,
1: yeah, that is absolutely the right. I mean, you would see that in a sort of this is uh, what is it, 86. So this is still Roger Moore era James Bond. So very, yeah, very. Bondy. yeah.
0: So, if it was a James Bond movie, he would have slept with her and then, like, stuck on a tree. Her. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah,
1: absolutely. <laughs> oh, no. There's also just one line, and again, you know, this is stuff that I feel like maybe in some of the earlier books we- I don't think we had our eyes open enough for some of this stuff. Certainly, I feel I didn't. But there's just a casual bit of anti-Semitism in this story where he's discussing about- Oh, yeah. How people don't lay claim to their countries in other worlds, and they say, oh, even the Jews didn't do that. That sort of horrible stereotype that they're greedy or miserly. And you're like, Ugh, that's a that's kind of gross. If you wanted to read it charitably, it's like, well, you know, the Jerusalem and the Holy Land is obviously very important to them. So, maybe they would say, hey, can you all stay away from it in other worlds? But it's too- it's you can't really tell if that's where it's coming from. It's too casual a comment. And it is also like, even the Jews, like, it's like, even they would not do this. It's And it's from one of the protagonists. You know, like it's not, it's not from the villain of the piece. It's not meant to make you go, oh, maybe she's not okay. So, yeah, that was a bit gross. Some of our subscribers, thank you so much, Uh mm. did get some questions in. This was a very, like I've said, a very last minute change. So, we we didn't put this out publicly because there would have been no time, but we did get a few questions. Before we get to those, though, do you have any favourite bits you want to read out? Because there are some good lines in this, though. There's always a few.
0: Yeah, I think the left ear one was the big one for me because I really enjoyed that one. But I think I brought all mine up on the way along. Like, it does pace well, so I don't think there was ones that particularly stood out to me. Mm. Did you have any? Well, I'm just having a, cause I'm trying to see if this is a quote I liked or a concept that I was confused by. <laughs> I'm,
1: confused. Uh, <laughs> I'm just trying to find I highlighted a lot of things, but a lot of them were just sort of, remember this. Mm. Oh, I did like... <laughs> I did like the introduction where it likens Larry Lindsay to Robinson Crusoe.
0: Oh, yeah. I'll
1: read out this paragraph because it's fun. People got the wrong idea about Robinson Crusoe. The popular image was of a jolly but determined man, heavy into goatskin underwear and manumission. But someone at forward base had loaned Lindsay an old, battered copy of the book. Robinson Crusoe was on his island for over 26 years, Lindsay learned, and had spent most of the time building stockades- Lindsay approved of this. The man obviously had his head screwed on, right? And then later on, it talks about his base, which could have just been a tent, but he's like, there was a stockade, of course. (laughs) I was like, this is great.
0: There were so many references to, like, famous lore literary. or There's, like, the John Wayne reference and Captain Nemo reference. Oh, and Daniel
1: Boone is in there. Mm, Yeah.
0: It's just just more than usual for a Terry Pratchett book. There's, like, quite a few of them in there.
1: Well, it's, you know, it's set in- you know, a version of the real world. So he can drop those things in, in a way that he can't in the disc world, which is set somewhere where those things don't exist.
0: Hmm. It gave me a lot to think about in terms of like why our earth is at the center or like, cause like they're presuming it is because there's sapience or intelligence there, but is it the same as assuming that the earth is at the center of, the universe, like, back in the day. So, like, because they're very early into their knowledge, presumably, of what this whole situation is. Is it that, like, we are here and therefore everything revolves around us attitude? Because they have that whole thing about, so beyond there must stretch even more. Beyond the high megas would be the gigas, the terrors, the the Or the googles. But by then, Earth would have hit the big changes. It would be moonless or an airless desert or a cinder around a red sun. All the things that Earth might have been if it hadn't been one place in a multiplex universe that could give rise to sapience perhaps because they said the soul was indivisible. But like, how mm-hmm. do we know that like the super baboons don't have souls? Like why couldn't any of the ones along the spectrum be the original one? And the further you go in either direction is you're getting further away from that. I don't feel like we get an answer in there, but that could also be laying the groundwork for a later revelation that, Actually, no, we're not at the center of everything. So, and I have some things to say about this when we get to our main episode as well. So.
1: Yeah, I think that's going to come up there as well. There were a couple of little bits, like there's just some nice little exchanges that I think move the plot along and, and give you a real good feel. Like when uh, Larry captures Joshua, Joshua says, there isn't any forward base now. The station's there, all right, but there aren't any people. They're dead. He paused waiting for the reaction. It was like dropping a brick into a pool of treacle. Aren't you going to say anything, he asked. No, I've got the gun. You talk. <laughs> All right, you soulless bastard. Someone poison them. And then he keeps going. And you're like, it's really like you can just see it. Again, it's a very cinematic dialogue. Like mm. you can just, he's really great at writing characters in a way that you just see their face and just get their attitude immediately. And I, I love that.
0: No, that was a great conversation, the one where he's like, Fully policing how this man responds to how or how he should be responding. But I'm like, no, you don't know what he's like. Yeah. And just what he's projecting on the outside doesn't reflect necessarily what's going on the, the inside. Plus, you're suspicious to him. Yeah. So, I think it's
1: well worth reading. Mm. I, and just, yeah, there's lots of little touches in there that we're not going to spend too much time on because this is a little bonus episode. Mm. <laughs> and we'll want to leave it for you to do that. But we should get on to- the questions that
0: we got sent in. Mm. All right, so we got two from Bell via Discord. So the first one is, if this short story was a chapter in a longer novel, when in the story would it occur, and what would have happened before and or after? Very mm. interesting question. I've been trying to figure out an answer the whole episode, and I feel like there's so many different places you could put it, depending on the kind of book you're trying to write. You could start oh. with this and do a flashback, or it could be right in the middle, like, after you thought you could do it chronologically. You could have this, like like... Because if you started with this, but then you sort of go... 10 years earlier, and then you show like how the base camp develops and things, um, where everyone gets poisoned knowing that they all are going to get killed. There's a lot of emotional resonance in mm. there. And you can also put in a lot of the stuff about how the, the politics of it all and the developing the technology was happening as well. But it gives you stakes from the beginning. But then again, I think you'd need to cut this short story up rather than use it as one chapter if you wanted to use it in that way.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. Cause I thought about this and I thought, well, I would start, I would start the book with this and I wouldn't go back. Mm. I would keep going because I'm, I'm a bit, I love things that like start in the middle and don't go back to fill it in. They're just like, okay, this is where it is. We're going now. You, we trust you to keep up. And the long earth, I think it starts in a similar place, but then it has all the flashback to step day and it jumps around in time a lot to fill in stuff. Which is something also we'll talk about in the Long Mars episode, but I, I would kind of like that. And as to what would happen afterwards, I think Larry and Joshua would get back to civilization,
0: but some hectic stuff would happen on the way.
1: Yeah. Like I think it, you could write a whole novel about this, like just their mm. trip back to civilization and something is going on in the long earth. Um, we should say it's not even called the long earth in this. Mm. It's just, it's just other earths. He hasn't come up with that name yet, but it's, Yeah, I kind of like that idea, and I think it would be this sort of- A little bit like parts of the novels, where it's this- You know, they're going somewhere, but not to explore. They're going somewhere for an urgent reason, and things get in their way as they go.
0: And if I were trying to guess what would happen after this, like, if this was the beginning of a story that continues with their journey, I would have it that Anna wasn't actually from Forever France. She's still a villain in some other way, but there's going to be a twist on why she was there, why she did the poisoning, and- Mm. There'll be consequences further down that aren't what they expect because they think they've t- tidied that up neatly. When I think it'll make an interesting story if that's not the case, that they're wrong about her motives, whether or not they're, but not about what she did. Mm. And
1: that's kind of hinted at already in the story because they have that conversation about the fact that these so called terrorist groups aren't really operating independently. They're kind of um, sort of clandestinely doing the government's bidding. There's the government. that sort of line where she says, uh, I think it's Anna who says, you know, oh no, they're not really doing stuff off their own bat. They don't really care about this stuff. They're a convenient thing for the government to say, oh, well, we would never do this. But it seems that public opinion is such that some people have taken it upon themselves to kill all these people who've colonized um, other oh, worlds no, of France.
0: What a shame. Um, oh. And
1: I mean, I thought that was quite like, it seems like quite a modern way to think about it.
0: Yep. So um, the next question, also from Belle. So, did you get more or less out of the High Megas having read most of the Long Earth series than if it had been a new concept to you? Mm. keep saying this. They're all such great questions. Like, we, all the questions we got are great. And it's hard to tell because, like...
1: I will say I'm yeah. glad I read it when we read the first one. And I do kind of wish I'd... I i can not remember now whether I read it before I read the novel or not. I think I read it before I finished the novel or maybe i or maybe i read it afterwards cuz i didn't i was worried it might spoil something but i i read it at the same time as the first book but reading it again now i i think both like i think coming to it fresh would be so much fun mm. because it does stand alone and it is a nice little story by itself but having read the other long earth books and knowing where these concepts end up in their evolution it's a really interesting glance at how they started and how these things change when people think about them
0: like i do love a comparison so i think i agree with ben that it would be great to come at it fresh though as i've talked about i think if i was like this is the only story in this world i'd be like why is it not polished Mm. that would be my only thing but i love comparing things and seeing how they've developed over time so i feel like i got a lot out of it in that respect like for example Shawshank Redemption, at school we studied the film, and I was like, well, you know, all I have to do is watch the film, so, of course, I will get out the novella from the library and read that and compare it, and I'll also get the the published screenplay and compare that to the film. So to have three different versions of the same thing and see how they all compare to one another, hmm. I live for that. That stuff is great. So this, seeing how far it's come in, what is it, like 20 years between, like, initial I-
1: 36. Yeah. six 36 okay. years.
0: I get so much, joy's not quite the right word, but it's fascinating to see how someone's mind has changed over that time and also how they, his writing has changed, his priorities and themes have changed and also just how this story developed because you get another mind coming in, in the series. So like, this is like Terry Patchett's pure vision on his own. And then when you get the series, it's not. So you kind of get a little bit of an idea of like what it might've been had he written this into of Discworld.
1: Yeah. And I think also like that time jump too, it does feel a bit like if someone had read this story, if it had been published in 1986 and then it just sort of didn't do anything and then someone else came along and said, hey, we want to adapt to that, I think they would have ended up somewhere similar in some of the ideas that they would have changed. Mm. But, you know, also somewhere quite different because it would have been someone else doing it. Yeah. Um, but it does feel a bit like an adaptation of his own work. Yeah.
0: All right, so the next question comes from Craig by Discord. I'm shortening down the question a little bit. But in another leg of the Trousers of Time where Color of Magic wasn't successful, what do you think the career of Sir Terry Pratchett might have been? Would we have ever seen Granny, Vimes, Death, Tiff? Would we be Pratcheting and us all listening? <laughs>
1: That's a good question. Um, I feel like this is, yeah, this is a different leg of the Trousers of Time.
0: I, I think he would have had a go at
1: writing this. Mm. And there's no way to tell how successful it would have been. I mean, I think he would have been still publishing books. Like, he was already good enough that people were happy to keep publishing books of his and they were selling enough that he could sell the next one.
0: He did say the idea of the Light Fantastic was pinging around in his mind, so he might have just written it a bit later and still sort of spun out. Maybe there would have been less Discworld books, but potentially still a thread of them.
1: Well, the first one still would have been published, right? Because this was after The Color of Magic.
0: I get the feel. Fi- uh,
1: look, in, my mind has gone off on a little flight of imagination here, and what I imagine would have happened is he would have published a short story anthology, which is what he talks about doing uh, in that introduction that we read out earlier. And this question uh, Craig mentioned in the longer version was inspired by the introduction in the W. H. Smith's metallic edition of the Long Earth, which has the high megas in it. But I imagine he would have published that collection of short stories and then either that would have been successful enough that he got on with that idea or it wouldn't have taken off and he would have tried something else, either going back to Discworld or trying something different. I mean, you look at the breadth of his non-Discworld short stories and he had a lot of different ideas. Maybe he would have tried another version of the carpet people that would have taken off. Or who knows? But I think my brain has gone, well, what if he mainly got known for these weird sci-fi short stories about a universe where there's parallel universes and then you know 30 years later Hollywood's (laughs) looking at short stories to turn into films and they make a long earth equivalent film series that adapts it and people argue about whether it's any good or not and then there's a version of that world where we make a podcast series about those films (laughs) Uh, I
0: absolutely would believe that I headcanon now
1: yeah but I think if if Color of Magic hadn't taken off, I think he would have tried something else. I think he wouldn't have written 41 Discworld novels for sure. He would have mm. written other things. I don't think he would have stopped writing. And I think we would have seen some ideas that never got there, you know, because he was busy doing Discworld stuff. And He clearly enjoyed it. Like, I don't think he would have written 41 of those because by the time you've written like 10 books in a series and everybody loves them- I think you can say as an author, I'm going to write something else now, and enough people would read it, and it would succeed or fail. And, like, his non-Discworld books were also big successes, so most of them anyway.
0: But maybe some versions of, like, those characters listed in other forms, like, not the same names, not necessarily exactly the same, but, like, a version of them in different series or standalone books. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, they clearly are concepts and things that matter to him. Otherwise, he wouldn't have included them in the Discworld series. So, if he hadn't pursued the Discworld series, I still think some of the concepts would have come out in different ways.
1: I think he would have come up with some way to write about death. Mm. I mean, even though the death in Color of Magic is not what we expect from Terry Pratchett's death, I think it's clearly something that was so important to him that he wanted to talk about and write about. It would have come out in some way or another. Mm. What a cool question.
0: Yeah, my brain just pinging off everywhere.
1: Yeah. But look, I think that wraps up our discussion of the High Megas. We hope you've enjoyed this little bonus episode to buy us a little time for the rescheduling of our next episode, which, as originally planned, is The Long Mars with Joel Martin, uh, which will come out on the glorious 25th of July uh, so we don't have to change the rest of our schedule. I should say, while it is coming out later, unless you are very, very prompt after you hear this episode, there's probably not a lot of time for any extra questions for that episode. Um But if you do have them, send them in as soon as you can. And if we get them in time, we'll answer them. If we don't, we will probably reply to you and say, sorry, you missed it. But what a great question. And maybe it'll spark some discussion on social media. By the way, the the hashtag for this episode, if you want to get involved in the oh, conversation, yeah. this is for uh, the discussion of the high megas, we'd just like to give a big thanks to listener Danny. Who, when we said, look, we were going to call this 57A, but we think that might be confusing. He said, you should call it 57 West. Um, And (laughs) that that was
0: genius.
1: (laughs) So good. Uh, And I'm actually going to push it a little bit further. We're going to, it's going to be Pratchett 57 West 5, just so people know that it's about five steps west of the actual (laughs) Pratchett 57. (laughs) So thank you, Daddy, for that. That was great. Liz, we should also just say a big thank you to all of our subscribers, because if you are a subscriber, you will know. If you've seen our social media recently, you'll mm. probably also know the platform we've been using for our subscription service, Possible, has closed down their subscription service. They still exist mm. as a crowdfunding site. Um, and just a big shout out to Possible. Thank you for giving us a platform we've been able to use for three and a half years to help fund the show. Mm. Uh, but they, it, it hasn't worked out for them and they, they're closing it down. And, uh, we didn't have an end date and then it sort of came upon us rather unexpectedly at the end mm. of June. And we found out at the start of the month. And so many of you who were subscribers have already jumped over to our new platform, which is coffee. Uh, that's K O dash F I. Um, it's a great name, but you yeah. have to spell it every time. And that's been really, really heartwarming because it's an administrative hassle. It's annoying, but you know it might hopefully it'll work out better for us in the long run because of some of the things it can do that the possible platform couldn't and we just want to say thank you to each and every one of you who have supported the podcast in any way over the last gosh nearly 5 years
0: now and we appreciate the extra life admin that was involved in making the switch because you know it's just another thing in a busy time for everyone so thank you yeah
1: and and if you haven't whether or not you do thank you for supporting us on possible mm. And if you haven't switched over, you can sign up there at any time. There's no pressure to do it immediately. So, thank you. Thank you so much. We should uh, announce the next episode, I think, for after our long Mars episode because we want to give people enough time to read the thing,
0: Liz. I mean, it won't take too long, but hopefully it should be okay yeah. because it's another short story um, called Final Reward, which first appeared in the append- appendant. Is that is that a thing that I'm saying now? No, <laughs> no. it first appeared in the independent fantasy role-playing magazine in 1988.
1: For a second there, I thought you said the independent fancy role playing magazine, and I'm like, (laughs) I want to do some fancy role playing. (laughs) That's where get your monocle. (laughs) You dress up nicely.
0: Isn't that just that murder one where you like? It's it's like it's 1925, and you're at a soirée, and someone has done a murder.
1: (laughs) Yeah, those can be a lot of fun Uh, and fancy. Yes, yes. Uh, If you have any questions about that short story, final reward, send those in with the hashtag Pratchat 58. And then after that, this one, I think we will give a bit of advanced warning about. In September, we're going back to Round World to read The Science of Discworld 3 for Pratchat 59. And then, as we turn 60, and- uh oh. I know. <laughs> so, so soon. We just started doing this podcast. It feels like that sometimes. But look, that's in October. And Pratchat 60, as promised, is going to be another kind of reflection and- open slather episode where we're not going to talk about a specific book. We're just going to answer your questions. So, if you've wanted to ask us about a book that we've already covered, if you've wanted to ask a general question about Pratchett or the Discworld, this is something we do on our subscriber-only podcast, but just this once, we're going to do it for everyone. So, send in whatever question you've got. That's not until October, so you've got time to think of some, and we will remind Mm. you uh, over the next few episodes. Um, But, yeah, if you're sending in questions for anything, uh, you can email them to chat at PratchatPodcast.com or you can send them via social media using the appropriate hashtag, which is Pratchat 58 for final reward, Pratchat 57 west 5 (laughs) for this episode for the high megas, or Pratchat 60 if you're going to ask us general questions. Uh, We'll remind Hmm. you about Science of Discworld again in the future.
0: But I think that's it. Yeah, I think that's- Um, our mini episode is like almost a, you know, it's not quite a full episode, but it's like halfway there. Yeah. Yeah, it'll do. <laughs> right, thank you for tuning in. And until next time, you know, don't make a fist of things.
1: You've been listening to Pratchett, the monthly Terry Pratchett book club podcast with Pratchett as Elizabeth Fox and Ben McKenzie. That's me. Pratchat is produced and edited by me with music by David Ashton of Sample & Hold Studios. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook at Pratchat Podcast and listen to past episodes and support the production of new ones via pratchatpodcast.com. Join the conversation for this episode using the hashtag Pratchat57West5. Pratchat is brought to you by Splendid Chaps Productions. We make entertainment for your ears, like the Doctor Who podcast Splendid Chaps and time travel comedy
0: series Night Terrors. To find out more, visit splendidchaps.com.